The, we've also seen, perhaps at a more micro level, some, some sort of censorship also coming from these payment networks, uh, where we've seen that they've stopped payments going to places like Wikileaks or Pornhub or Infowars. Um, now, should, should we as, as, as citizens be concerned about, as you're mentioning, this increased amount of power that is now wielded by the payment companies and by the big technology companies? I think possibly yes. Um, I think it is it is difficult. So if we go back to the purpose of money and payments, it's a public good. It's the system that allows you to buy whatever you need to, to, to buy in Denmark. It, it allows society to function. Um, and if the if the operators of that infrastructure prevent you from doing something that's um, legitimate in Denmark, um, so you have something in standing in front of your democratic choice. I, I think that is that does start, and there are no alternatives. Then that starts to become that is problematic. I think. Yeah. Um, now I think there's there's degrees to which discrimination laws would pr protect certain things. Um, so I I, I I think it would be impossible for say a religion to be dis disallowed. You you could see that particular charities could be taken off because of different political views by the operators. You could also see some of the operators coming under political pressure in their home jurisdictions about doing certain things and stopping them. And because it's such a, um, you know, it, it, it tends so much to monopoly payments. It, it is, again, and technology obviously adds to that force. It is something that I think policymakers are going to have to resolve for. And it's difficult to make, you know, at the moment, it's difficult to see how they could oblige someone to serve the sex trade. But on the other hand, you know, if, if the sex trade is allowed to exist in your nation, um, then it needs to be able to pay and be paid. So there has to be, there, there will have to be some kind of answer to that question. So, uh, Natasha, it's such a great pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for taking time to speak to us today. Not at all. Thank you. Real pleasure to, to be here and speaking with you, Chris. All right. So, uh, let's just get started. Please, before we, we, we get into the conversation, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us who you are and what you do. So, I'm Natasha Dutran, um, co-author of The Payoff, How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything, uh, which is a book uh, that published uh, last year, I don't know if you can see it, um, but I, um, I'm a sort of observer, commentator, itinerant of the financial markets. Um, I started working in the in the derivatives and repo and bond markets. Um, I then moved into journalism, financial journalism, and wrote and and learnt lots in doing so about the financial markets. And then I've been working in, in the policy area for about the last ten years. All right. Well, so we're going to be basing most of our uh, conversation today on, on the fascinating book that, that you wrote, The Payoff, which I have to say, I really thoroughly enjoyed reading it and I learned so much from it. The first question that I have, which is something that before reading the book, I would have thought, well, this is just a very obvious question, but I found that it's actually far more complex than I thought. So tell us, what is a payment? Well, a payment is, is basically um, a discharge of debts, um, debts that you may being carrying into the future. In other words, you, you're you're paying for the debt um, to realise a product or a service uh, in the future. Um, 
but it's a very personal thing. It's, it's, it's very interesting because you and I may have a debt and, and we can choose how we discharge that and what we discharge that with. Uh, so you may accept pounds and you may accept them by bank transfer, uh, but you're in Denmark, so you probably wouldn't accept pounds, uh, but you might accept a bank transfer. So you and I can individually decide how we, what we accept and how we, uh, how we exchange. Um, but we're informed by the world around us. And, and you don't want my pounds because you're in Copenhagen and being in Copenhagen shapes both what you'll accept and how you'll accept it. Why should the, let's say, the average person that just has maybe a couple of credit cards, a debit card and a bank account care about payment? What, what perhaps are the main problems in payments that still have not been solved through technology that the average consumer should care about? Well, what, what, just starting with the first question, why should they care about payments? Um, well, first, I mean, they're, they're fascinating, um, but they're also really important because if, if this person uh, cares about money, um, they, they might not you know, care about money in, a, in an end in itself, and, and most of us um, probably don't. But if we, if we don't care about money in, in, as an end in itself, the reason that we want money and that we have money and that we use money is to pay. Um, and, I, and I would argue, and I think we argue in the book, that, that payments, you know, it is in payments that we all, rich or poor, have a shared interest in money. And, and payments are the social construct that allow us to, you know, buy things from each other, exchange value, buy food and so forth. So the, the greatest shared social purpose of money is, in my view, um, payments. Uh, and what hasn't technology solved for? Well, I mean, it, <laughs> payments are many things that you know, technology is, is one of them, customs another, um, but they're also power um, and they're also local. Um, so going back to, to my sending you pounds, um, the way that I can send them to you uh, relies on um, not only on the, on the UK payments infrastructure, but also the Danish one and how well they communicate with each other. And as we know in cross-border payments, they, um, they don't necessarily communicate with each other very well. Um, but part of the reason for that is that mostly we're paying in country. So there's, um, there's less demand for cross-border payments. I think the Nordic area is slightly different in that because you're very integrated um, economically. Right, okay. Um, now let's, uh, I want to talk, touch base on financial inclusion because uh, we, we hear nowadays that the new types of money that we're seeing popping up everywhere will, will solve financial, the, the issue of financial inclusion. And, and in your book, you talk about a duality between financial inclusion versus financial exclusion. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, about, well, about this whole idea of, of financial inclusion versus exclusion and whether we should actually buy into the whole idea that digital money like, like CBDCs or cryptos or even DM would actually um, improve financial inclusion? On the face of it, uh, digital, um, digital payments are safer than, than cash. So if, if, you, if you've hitherto been earning in cash and spending in cash and saving in cash, um, there are a lot of risks to that. You can, you can lose your money, it can get stolen, get burnt, perish. Um, and, and because of all of those things, being cash to you know, operating in a, in a purely uh, cash subsistence sort of way uh, discourages you from saving. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't earn interest on your money. Uh, there can be devaluations and they can get stolen. Um, your money can get stolen. So 
moving those people who, who had previously been operating solely in cash with all the restrictions that, I, that that involves because it also limits your economic sphere of operation. You can't, uh, you know, you can't buy things on the internet with cash. You can't, you know, buy things from another city or another town without actually physically going there. So it increases your costs. Um, so on the, to that extent, moving to, um, to digital forms of payment um, and savings vehicles is, is a positive. Uh, but that said, you need to be enabled in that digital world. Um, so you need to have the equipment uh, that would allow you to, to, to do so, the, in some cases a smartphone, uh, in some cases a very basic mobile phone in, in, in Kenya, for instance. Um, but you need, you need the internet access. Um, and, then, and then you need to be you know, savvy enough to, to use these instruments, um, which can be very basic, but they can also be quite sophisticated. And I think what what I find fascinating is is we've seen in Kenya with M-Pesa that you know an entire population has has moved into into digital payment very very quickly, um, and and that's it's been transformative um, in terms of inclusion in, in inverted commas, um, and and I think this this payment digital payment um, entry point can you know can then lead on to savings and credits and so on and so forth and, and that's very useful but in in countries like the uk uh, where you have very sophisticated digital payment and banking um, offerings what you're also saying is people being excluded because the you know you might need a smartphone you might need to to really understand things to be conversant with that sort of technology um, and, and have broadband access as well. So it's not it's it's not a, a one-way street. Mm -hmm. And and in some pockets where you'd expect this to deliver just solely net benefits, it, it's not necessarily at the moment. Um, now then to crypto and financial inclusion. Um, I think we have to be skeptical on this one, Chris. <laughs> um, I think we have to be skeptical on this one. Um, but. It's interesting to be speaking from the UK to the Nordics, um, and you're you're in Denmark, and um, you're not in the eurozone, I don't think, and and we uh, in the UK uh, were not in and still aren't are not in the eurozone, um, and we have a, a national money, and there's there's many reasons um, that our countries chose to go down that route, um, but we're we're tied to our money. Um, now, we don't choose that necessarily, but we choose to live in our countries and to abide by the norms and customs in, in those countries. Now, if, if you and a group of, of you know, other affluent fintech persons in, in Denmark started to operate with a new cryptocurrency that worked very well for you um, and for, you know, for other, let's say, financially sophisticated people in, in Denmark, you could end up with a divided population. So this shared social good, which is, you know, the krona, um, is no longer a shared social good. It's there's, there's a two tier kind of payments economy. And that's inefficient. The reason that we have national currencies is to allow seamless value transfer across our nations uh, without the frictions of exchange. Uh, without the costs of exchange, without delays. So the idea of moving to private forms of money, I think is problematic if we don't have regulation in place that ensures exchangeability and so forth. Uh, and then to the idea that 
um, a currency like DM or some of the stable coins, so so called that we're seeing um, touted for financial inclusion. Well, there what we're seeing is a proposition um, that a synthetic dollar uh, be used um, to support populations in um, in in precarious um, in precarious regions, shall we say? Um, so there, you're you're again you're taking you're putting reliance of individuals outside the country. Now, if if one imagined a very dangerous regime somewhere, uh, one would think, well, it's enfranchising for the population to um, to move away from, you know, to be free of their of their rulers, um, and one could see that as being reasonably attractive. Um, but that's not always the cases that, that they're talking about. And I don't think we'd be thinking it's a great idea for, you know, starving Hayden to be at the mercy of a private company uh, who can devalue its cryptocurrency when it feels like it, um, uh, which could go bust. Um, so they wouldn't just be taking, you know, if one was to use one of these cryptocurrencies for disbursements, which um, many of them are encouraging for charity disbursements and relief disbursements, you're you're creating a false economy, but also you're giving these people new risk. Mm. However bad the local currency may be, it's the one that they're buying bread in, um, and it's the one the, the economy operates on. And and asking them to take on a currency risk and then also. Uh, a credit risk of, of the private issue of that stablecoin, I, 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 I think is, is pretty suboptimal. Right. Okay. Um, let's move on to, to the next question. And, and, and this is related to some of the innovation that we have seen in the payment space, because uh, we, we've seen a lot of innovation, especially coming out of Europe and, and the Nordics. Um, and, and what I found really interesting was trying to understand uh, how some of these innovations, specifically in, in the shape of, of reward cards, how they actually work. Can, can you explain and elaborate a little bit on, on that for us? Well, uh, there's a lot of money in the interchange. So the interchange is the fee um, that's levied on merchants when we use cards. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, in most places um, in, in Western Europe and in the US, that is where the bulk of um, income from payments comes from, and that supports the, the payments business, you know, the networks, the cards, the all, all of these things. And we, as consumers, we don't see those costs, um, particularly in Europe. Uh, we, we, we don't see them. So we don't see a difference between the cost of our paying in cash versus us, us paying with a credit card or a debit card. Um, but there are differences in, in those costs to the merchants. Um, and in order to encourage us to use our cards, in particular credit cards, there are these so-called reward schemes that seem great to us as consumers. Um, but what they're really doing is locking us in. So much as you're locked into the Danish kroner and I'm locked into the British pound, um, the cards schemes like to lock us in to them and, and hence they give us rewards. Now we pay for those through the surcharges effectively that the merchants are baking into their prices. Sometimes we actually pay for a particular card. Um, there could be an annual fee or so forth. Um, but but they're all basically trying to lock us in. And payments is is a you know it's a network business. It's a business in which you we are locked in. We start to be locked into our currencies and then into you, you, being in Denmark. You're locked into 
the systems that are accepted in Denmark, be they card-based or account-based or, or otherwise. Um, but are these are these rewards free? No, there is nothing free. There's no such thing as a free lunch, as we say in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because as a consumer, we very seldomly actually think about the enormous amount of infrastructure that needs to be maintained behind that for it to be able to, to process our payments. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned just a little while ago, and you were talking about M-Pesa and, and Kenya and and how uh, some of these economies have been able to really leapfrog um, the, the whole 40 years of technological uh, development in, in the West and, and, and really come up with fascinatingly innovative uh, solutions. Do you think that that same process of leapfrogging uh, that happened in payments can be applied to other financial products like loans and maybe even mortgages? Um, uh, in, a, in a similar pattern in, in some of these developing economies? Oof. I think, I think there's in, in many areas there's, there's a long way to go. Um, I don't know that those things will be reinvented in the same way that that really payments were reinvented in Kenya with with M-Pesa. Um, <laughs> But I think the use of data, um, you know, payments data to enable micro lending or, you know, other, other forms of lending um, could be stimulated in, in a way that would have been unthinkable uh, without those, um, those payment platforms and without the richness of data. Mm. Um, but, you know, that, there is, there's a two-way street with, uh, with that because, you know, if you see my payment data it might encourage you to give me a loan or it might discourage you from giving me a loan. Right. And I find it fascinating to hear some of the uh, the profiling thinking that uh, people are talking about. Um, you know, that if you, um, by looking at your spending habits, they can see that you're into, you're, you're buying a lot of premium products, therefore you're a good person to lend to. Well, it doesn't follow in my logic that because I spend money on expensive things, I'm a good person to lend to. It might make me a bad person to lend to. Right. Depends whether I can afford it. So I think there's only so much you can gather from outgoing payments information. Um, I think incoming payment information from a business, but if you're looking to lend to a business, then I think uh, you could we could see some really interesting things happen. And I mean, I, I take buy now, pay later, um, I think buy now, pay later in the business sector could be really interesting, a sort of digitized factoring. Um, so I, I think that's something that we may see come on board, not not only um, in some of those economies, but but also in, in you know, in Europe and, and elsewhere. Now, let's talk about uh, a subject that is a bit sensitive and that we've heard a lot about recently, especially since uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And this is the, the, the topic of sanctions. Yeah. Um, now, uh, we've heard about that there was a lot of pressure to remove Russia from the, from the SWIFT network as part of the sanctions. Now, and the question I have for you is, should we be concerned that the control of the payment networks could effectively be used to bring otherwise sovereign nations to their knees? Well, it, yes, um, but it, that was always the case, wasn't it? Um, I think what's different now is how much power there is in the hand of private companies. And of course, small countries like the UK and, and um, Nordic countries, we're, we're 
necessarily dependent on you know foreign providers mm. um, and I think in much the same way that we've you know there's national discourse about um, which carriers um, should should uh, or you know which infrastructure builds you should have and uh, from which companies and um, you know where where are they from? I think some of this has to be transported. This thinking has to be considered in payments. Um, now, clearly, a lot of the um, big payments infrastructure providers in Europe uh, today are American, um, and by and large, um, that's probably not a problem. But there have been times when. Europe and the US have had different thinking about things. I mean, we can, Cuba is, is obviously one example. Uh, there has been a divorce in thinking over time about, about Iran. Um, and, and that can mean that whatever a European bank or person or company wants to do, they may not be able to do because of, um, because of US sanctions and um, US rules and so forth. And I mean, certainly this commit this this commission, as in the European Commission, very much had this at the front forefront of its thinking um, when it came when it came in, and there was a lot of discussion about strategic autonomy and payments were very much within that thinking. Mm-hmm. How much that has changed? Um, obviously, we've seen much more geopolitical alignment uh, between <laughs> the US and Europe in in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, so that that thinking may be slightly less front of mind, but w- when we're thinking about the dependency, it's not you know we 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 don't need to think only about let's say PayPal, um, but um, or Visa and Mastercard that the names that we know and love or know and hate, but you know the pipes deep behind are equally important. Um, so it's a you know a deep supply chain plumbing question, but uh, but. Yes, I will. I mean, I think as any teenager who <laughs> depended on, on their parents' purse strings will, will remind you payments are a, they are a form of power. But I think we, we also have to, you know, if we just stand back from the pipes themselves and the money itself, and we're all deeply economically entangled with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, even you know, American IT companies are deep, deeply entangled in with you know Chinese supply chains and and production. The chip business is is very messy. So, if we if we try to look at the whole, everything involved in a payment, we would find there's a bit of America, there's a bit of Europe, there's a bit of China going on. And if you wanted to completely nationalise, I think you'd be back to cash. And even in, even cash, um, you know scale economies have meant that most note printing is done by only a handful of companies anyway Uh, so one would have to resurrect a note builder but i think post this this current situation um i think there will be a lot more thinking across the board in in where we're getting all sorts of things from you know whether it's solar panels or telecoms equipment or chips or um you know the raw materials that are going into into our into our technologies, all of these things will be thought about. Whether they could be resolved in in a way that um, politically aligned nations can remain completely independent of those they're not aligned with, I'm not sure. Hmm. And, and I guess the we've also seen, perhaps at a more micro level, some some sort of censorship also coming from these payment networks, uh, where we've seen that they've stopped payments going to 
places like Wikileaks or Pornhub or Infowars. Um, now, should, should we as, as, as citizens be concerned about, as you're mentioning, this increased amount of power that is now wielded by the payment companies and by the big technology companies? I think possibly yes. Um, I think it is it is difficult. So if we go back to the purpose of money and payments, it's a public good. It's the system that allows you to buy whatever you need to, to, to buy in Denmark. It allows society to function. Um, and if the if the operators of that infrastructure prevent you from doing something that's um, legitimate in Denmark, um, so you have something in standing in front of your democratic choice. I, I think that is that does start, and there are no alternatives. Then that starts to become that is problematic. I think. Yeah. Um, now I think there's there's degrees to which discrimination laws would pr protect certain things. Um, so I, I I think it would be impossible for say a religion to be dis disallowed. Um, but you could imagine a very extremist sort of you, you could you, you could see that particular charities could be taken off because of different political views by the operators you could also see some of the operators coming under political pressure in their home jurisdictions about doing certain things and stopping them and because it's such a um it, it, it tends so much to monopoly payments it is again and technology obviously adds to that force it is something that i think policymakers are going to have to resolve for and it's difficult to make you know at the moment it's difficult to see how they could oblige someone to serve the sex trade but on the other hand you know if, if the sex trade is allowed to exist in your nation um then it needs to be able to pay and be paid so there has to be there, there will have to be some kind of answer to that question Yes, indeed. I think that presents a quite a quite a complex dilemma to to be sorted out, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the, the use of technology for that in, in some of the further questions that we have, and also with regards to programmable money. Um, but but for now, let me just ask you. Um, in in the book, you mentioned that unlike Asia and the U.S., uh, payments in Europe are subject to a number of caps and regulations that basically limit the amount of fees that they can charge. Um, we've also seen that there's, there's almost like a race to the bottom when it comes to fees, especially when new companies are coming in with very, very uh, low maintenance infrastructures that allow them to reduce their, their operating costs. So the, the question I have for you is, uh, where is the revenue in operating a payment company in Europe? Uh, and, and how can payment companies in Europe remain profitable? Um, well, I think by and large, most of them at the moment are um, interchange revenue, even though the interchange fees in Europe are considerably lower than they are in the United States. Um, is that enough for them to survive? I, I think uh, probably not uh, in the longer term. I mean, a lot of the, um, you know, the fintech infrastructure costs, you know, their infrastructure is, is much newer, uh, much cheaper to maintain. They're much lighter. They have much lighter footprints, lower staffing costs, all all these sort of things, and, and less regulatory um, cost and and so forth. That's true, um, but I think the interchange fees will come under new pressure in Europe. I don't think that's in question. Um, so I think they will go down. Um, we're currently in an inflationary environment. Um, 
which has got all the tensions it it has got um, but it it's meaning that money for fintechs is is harder to come by uh, they're under more pressure to deliver uh, or to reach profit profitability um, or you know positive revenue um, we're probably doing less discretionary spending as consumers we might be spending more just because things cost more but we're going to have less money so a lot of the um, the assumptions that they've grown up with so very low interest rates easy money you know tidal waves of vc funding um a lot of discretion discretionary spending um these are not givens anymore um so we look to banks and say well how do banks make their money they make money on the interchange um and they make money on supplying credit as well um so you could say well the fintechs could start supplying credit um well only if they've got balances to lend out yeah and i think one of the one of the perverse things um not perverse things but when i look at fintechs i mean i'm you know i'm sort of 50 odds and they don't naturally appeal to me i might use them i use several but their marketing is not directed at people like me and it's certainly not directed at people like my father um it's generally directed at the sort of 20 20-year-old sort of demographic. Um, and now banking's always, always targeted that demographic on the presumption that you get customers young and keep them for life. Um, but they've get, got customers long, uh, young, and lent the older generation's balances out to the younger customers and made money on the spreads. But if you're a fintech and you don't have the older people's balances, you can't lend out to the younger ones. Um, and it's credit that you know does fuel a lot of rev- payments, um, payments revenue. It's as simple as that. Um, so I think it's going to be quite difficult for them. I think one one thing to touch on, I suppose, in, in this is it used to be that when we took the tube or the bus or we bought a newspaper or a coffee, we sh- you know we dug into our purses or our pockets and we dug out change and we paid for them. And now we're doing the smallest payments by cards. Yeah. And of course that's that is revenue um so that helps the fact you know the more that we use our cards the better um for for everyone in that industry not necessarily better for the merchant but better for everyone in that industry but is that enough to keep standalone businesses going in in the new environment i'm not sure let's let's talk now a little bit about cryptocurrencies um we haven't seen crypto adopted as a, as a mechanism for payment. Uh, and that's because of the volatility and because of a number of additional things. But do you think that eventually cryptocurrencies will uh, constitute a, a, a form of payment? And, and or what would need to happen for, peop- for people to actually gain trust in using them as an exchange mechanism? Um, well, I'm quite negative on crypto, I have to say, cryptocurrencies. Um, so, I, 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 if, if I operated in, in illicit businesses, I would be um, quite happy to, to, to deal in crypto um, because I could get away from the strictures of, or I could hope to get away from the strictures of the financial policemen and um, bank checks and all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, on the dark web, these cryptos are used very widely. So I think that they are used quite a lot for payments, but just not for good stuff also if i lived in a country with a very very volatile um and untrustworthy currency and 
a government that might inflate its way out of problems at any given point, then a cryptocurrency might seem a good bet. Um, the dollar might also seem quite a good bet. Um, and if you ask me which one I would go for, I think I'd probably go for the dollar were I in that situation rather than the additional excitement of, <laughs> of crypto rides um, and, and you know, the expenses of getting in and getting out. But when we look at the friction, at the at the problems that there are in payments, so the frictions, the costs, and so forth, mostly they relate to exchange across currency, across borders and currencies, and very often there's the same thing. Um, introducing another asset into our krona pound exchange means that we're paying twice the amount for exchanging value. Once into the crypto asset and then once back. Now, if you lived in a pure crypto world, you've given up the krona and I, I um, crossed into crypto and, and you kept the crypto and spent it, then then yes, but then it begs the question why you've moved into crypto in the first place, given that you're, you know, you're, you're not in a country with a very volatile currency and um, about to inflate its way out of problems. So I, I don't see that. Um, but also, if we go back to this, um, the national sort of question, um, you may not agree with everything the Danish government does, and you not may, you know, there'll be lots of different political views and religious views in Denmark and different interests and so on and so forth, but you are part of that community. And you know, you sort of know what it is. Um, now, to give that up to move into another community, finite, you know, uh, currency community, um, and the idea that this would be a, a great big world currency community that you're happily happy to vest your your trust in. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's, it's sort of quite far fetched that there would be this global um, universe of trust that we've, you know, we failed. To- <laughs> we failed to create in the real world Um, I I don't see that moving into a virtual world makes that any more possible I think you could sort of get little factions of currencies Um, I think in the wholesale markets I think um, it's a slightly different question but I think at the retail level um, I I do not see a future for cryptocurrencies private cryptocurrencies okay that's an interesting perspective as, well, as payment instruments, as speculative investment vehicles, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and what about CBDCs? Because uh, we know that a lot of countries are either rolling out their own CBDC or they're considering, uh, considering doing so. Uh, we've also heard the Bank of International Settlements saying that uh, anything that crypto can do, CBDCs can do better. So the question is more geared towards, we know that CBDCs can be programmable and we've seen some instances of them being used for limiting the amount of, uh, of CBD of currency that you can actually spend on a particular item or uh, having uh, expiry dates. Should should we in the West, and especially, specifically in Europe, should we be concerned about the potential rollout of CBDCs given the potential they have to limit the way in which money is used? Well, would you rather the Danish government did it or a private foreign company <laughs> limited what you could spend your money on? Is there another option, like not not, not having it limited at all? <laughs> That's cash. Um, and I think, um, 
I think the CBDC discussion is a really interesting one because it focuses the mind um, and it should be focusing the, the, you know, the general public's mind on, on deciding what to do. And I think the decision to do a CBDC or not to do a CBDC on how to do a CBDC, they're so, it touches on so many issues. Um, I think it's, it, it's a decisions that you know, the general public and, and the body politic needs to be properly engaged with because it does raise so many questions. Um, and, but it also brings to the forefront these questions about, you know, the power of private companies, about where your country thinks uh, the balance should lie in terms of, um, you know, profit versus social goods, public versus private. Um, where are the borders on, you know, wh where do you want to draw the lines on these things? Um, but in, in having that discussion, I think we it's, it's really important to remember that we're not looking at today's landscape and saying, well, everything works very well, we don't need to change any, anything. I mean, payments always work very well for the moment because they have to, you know, even in the Irish banking crisis, uh, when all the banks were shut, the payments managed to work. Yeah. Um, you, you, you find a way for payments to work. Um, but the future is going to look very different, very different to today. And it will look, un undoubtedly, it will look much more digital. Um, and, and maybe we, we will want some, you know, we will be transferring value tokens and, and maybe you do need, you know, the, a public representation of money in that, um, in, in digital form to ensure that. Um, it was very interesting. I had some, um, someone from the ECB speaking last week and he raised something which is blindingly obvious but I hadn't really thought about it was that in a very digital future uh, if there wasn't a digital euro um, there would be no representation of the euro itself and of course you know when you've got 19 countries tied together by a currency that might start to be more important than you might think in in, in Denmark where you're all familiar with what it is that you're transacting in yeah. Um, so that was a, a slightly sort of um, different interpretation on it, um, on on one of the reasons for, for having one, I thought. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Um, so let's just, uh, just, just to finish our conversation today, um, what do you expect the future to look like uh, when it comes to payments? So let's say, uh, what would payments look like by 2030? in terms of currencies, in terms of CB, uh, the availability of, of crypto and, and technology? I, th I think crypto will still be around. I think it will be much more regulated. Um, I think we'll probably have crypto, um, which will be used for whatever it's used for. I think we'll have stable coins, but properly regulated stable coins. Um, I, th I think an, an economic model that works for you and me as, as consumers and private companies as issuers um, has yet to be defined. And I think some of the euphoria that we have seen in that area from you know private operators and entrants, there shouldn't be that much money in payments, basically, <laughs> because we don't want to pay that much to pay. And payments are, in effect, are, you know, the, it's a public good. Um, it doesn't mean you can't make private profit, but you shouldn't be either exposing people to huge amounts of risk or making huge profits because in both of those cases, something's going wrong. Um, but I think I think we will see both of, both of them. And I think that, you know, there could be good reasons for them. There could, there could be 
I have a lot of logic. Um, and, you know, once they're there, we might do all sorts of things that we can't even conceive of doing today. So, I, and your question to ask me to look into the future is such a difficult one. Um, I mean, I can remember sitting in a room in about 2010 and someone bringing out a fairly rudimentary iPhone saying, you know, we're going to do all our banking on these. And the room full of people, and we were all in payment, said, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, where are we today? Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think we could be doing a lot, so many, we're uncertain, certainly payments will have evolved enormously and there's so much competition there's so much investment going on in in payments um that i would hope um there will be huge amounts of innovation that will create all sorts of new business and commercial opportunities that we can't even think of today right well uh with that natasha thank you so much for for taking the time to speak to us i think it's been a really really interesting conversation you have an, an enormous amount of knowledge and insights which of course can, can can all be accessed directly through through your book uh the, the payoff so so thank you very much for taking time to speak to us uh, i'm sure we will, uh, at least from my perspective i would have a ton more questions to talk to you about so i hope that we have an opportunity to talk again in the future so thanks so much i hope so thank you chris <laughs>